0: His master said to him, "Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little; I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." Matthew 25:21. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's so great to be here with you. I'm so excited uh, to be in the pulpit today. It's been a few Sundays since I've been in the pulpit. So I I thank Father Scott for giving me this opportunity to preach. And uh, as it's been a few Sundays, I've rolled a bunch of servants into one. So get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. uh, But I promise you're going to get your money's worth. So um, we'll go from there on that part. Now, these These past few weeks, last week, this week, and even next week, I I like to read ahead as well for our Sunday readings. We have great readings. Uh, There is a lot going on in our Old Testament, in our Gospel, in our New Testament. They all come together. And from a child, from as a child in church, these are some readings that have, have, have been close and near and dear to my heart. And I was actually excited last week. Uh, and getting Matthew chapter 24, the parable of the, I'm sorry, Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins, the first part of this chapter, and even 1 Thessalonians 4. And I was like, all right, Father Scott, we're going to get this sermon on a rapture. Here it comes. I can't wait to hear this. Uh, it's it's going to be there, but no joy on that. And so I'll have to preach that sermon, but not today. I won't preach that sermon today. But I do want to continue looking at Matthew 25. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 25, and and we'll pick up with verses 14 through 30 uh, in Matthew's gospel. Now, Matthew 25 is an interesting and relevant chapter for us right now at this point in the calendar year. We're in the middle of November. We're approaching the end of the liturgical year, but we're hearing about events from the last week of Jesus's life. Jesus told this parable and the one we heard last week to his disciples in Jerusalem in the early days of Holy Week. But we aren't in Holy Week. We're approaching Advent. So why are we getting this gospel reading now? Why not in late March or early April? And it's here that we see the lectionary or our weekly schedule of scripture readings doing the work of a teacher and friend. While we're not in Holy Week, The content of Jesus' parables in Matthew 25 are appropriate for the impending season of Advent. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells three parables all related to eschatology, that big technical theological word Father Scott introduced to us last week. And as he said, eschatology refers to the last things or the end of the world. And when we're talking about of things related to eschatology, certainly the second coming of Jesus and his judgment are applicable. Now, as I said a moment, ago, a moment ago, the lectionary is acting as our friend by giving us gospel readings that point to Advent on these final Sundays of ordinary time. Last week, Father Scott left us considering how we are to be faithfully obedient as we await the arrival of the bridegroom. And this week, On the penultimate Sunday of ordinary time, we gain valuable insight into our Lord's expectations of us and what he has given us as his stewards until he returns again. And so, we find ourselves living in what has been called the time between the times. Like those who were expectantly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah for the first time, we are expectantly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah for the second time. And that's the point of Advent we practice expectant waiting. While we are winding down this liturgical year, we should be preparing ourselves for remembering those who were waiting for Jesus to come the first time. And we should also be preparing ourselves for Jesus to come a second time. Hence the phrase, the time between the times. Now I told you that I would have to wait another day to preach a sermon on the rapture and the second coming of Jesus as described in our New Testament readings from First Thessalonians. And let me tell you, that was so much a part of my upbringing as a child and teenager. As some of you may know, like Father Scott, I spent much time in a Pentecostal tradition known as the Assemblies of God, or AG for short. The doctrine of the rapture and the second coming of Jesus are of paramount importance in Pentecostal theology. I can still replay in my mind parts of many sermons related to the rapture. I can still remember watching a film series entitled A Thief in the Night in youth group on Wednesday nights. I had more than one experience of coming home to an empty house, not knowing where my parents and siblings were and thinking that I had somehow missed the rapture. I had been left behind. It was nerve wracking to think of that as a young teen. I was so scared. I'd, I'd have to die a martyr's death in order to gain entrance into heaven. And I didn't know if I could do that. So needless to say, it was a source of great anxiety. And even now, as I think about it, and I think about the times that my friends and I in youth would discuss what we would do if we were left behind, I've got to move on from it right now because I'm halfway thinking that I've somehow missed the rapture again. So Lord, have mercy. But if I've missed it, you've missed it too. So we're in this together. So uh, we'll, we'll figure out something. Now, instead of focusing so much on the when and how questions of the second coming of Jesus, I want to focus on other aspects of our time between the times. And this is where Matthew 25 helps us. So let's dig in. Now in our gospel reading for Matthew, we heard a parable about a rich man, a very rich man who goes on a journey and leaves some of his property in the form of money to three of his servants according to their ability. The text doesn't tell us he's rich, but the amounts that he leaves behind do. One servant was given five talents. One was given two and one was given one talent. In first century Palestine, a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. To be given five talents means that servant received 100 years worth of wages. To be given two talents was to receive 40 years worth of wages and one talent 20 years worth of wages. For a grand total of 160 years of wages dispersed by this man. Perhaps we could think of him as the Jeff Bezos of his time. Now, all three of these servants knew their master well. They knew his expectations, his desires, and his temperament. They knew what he wanted of them as stewards of his property. He didn't want to lose any of his property. He wanted to see growth and progression, not loss or regression. And they knew that if, if that growth were to happen, it would require something of them. They couldn't just sit back and think the five, two, and one talent would simply multiply and increase without any work or effort. The question they faced was, what are you going to do with what has been entrusted to you? Or how would you steward, how will you steward what has been given to you? Now the first two got it right. The first servant with the five talents went out and made some deals like a good capitalist and turned his five talents into ten talents. The second servant went out and doubled his money as well. This is good. They're on a roll. They did well in their Dave Ramsey classes. Needless to say, personal finance is their specialty. But the third servant, the third servant, he didn't fare so well. He went out and dug a hole and hid his master's money, perhaps out of fear or laziness. He must have been with me skipping school the day that Dave Ramsey showed up to lecture. In this account, he didn't keep what was entrusted to him. He forfeited his opportunity to increase what was entrusted to him. Now, I want to emphasize that point again. He did not keep what was entrusted to him. He forfeited his opportunity to increase what was entrusted to him. How do we know that he forfeited what his master gave to him? Well, Jesus tells us when the, parent, when the master came back, he settled his accounts with his servants. So the first servant gave back 10 talents, the second four talents, and the third, he gave back that one talent. Happy is the master with the first two servants. We all hear those famous words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, only a very rich man would call those amounts of money given out a little. But the master does not have kind words for the third servant who knows he's a hard man, reaping where he did not sow and gathering where he scattered no seed. In judgment, the master seems to affirm what the servant says about him and his reaping and his gathering. But he doesn't affirm his servant in order to console him. He does it to rebuke the servant. If the master reaps and gathers where he does not sow or scatter seed, then the servant should have taken the master's money to the bankers to invest it so it could make money where it had not labored. Like a good capitalist, use money to make money. He should have worked smarter rather than not at all. Now the servant paid dearly for his misjudgment in a couple ways. The first price the servant paid was what little he had was taken and given to the servant with 10 talents. The master taught a valuable lesson for them and us today. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here we see the haves and the have-nots getting what's due to them according to the master's good judgment. The second price the servant paid was his position in his master's household. The inaction cost the worthless servant his standing with the master. He was cast into the outer darkness where there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, of course, raises the question regarding what kind of judgment is given to the servant. I think in the context of the chapter and what is being discussed, it definitely fits that this parable is referring to a final judgment of separation and loss. And now that we've gone over this parable, we get to ask the question, what in the world is Jesus trying to communicate to his hearers in it? To us? What's he saying and what does he mean? And while there are many directions to take this parable and many things to consider, I want to make just a few observations and points for us today. This parable is the second in a series of three parables in Matthew 25, which is preceded by a dramatic scene of Jesus excoriating the scribes and Pharisees at the temple, calling them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, serpents. And a brood of vipers. He then leaves the temple and speaks to his disciples concerning signs of the end of the age and that the day and hour of his return is unknown to all of humanity. Now we can recall the parable of the virgins from last week, and we'll hear the parable of the sheep and goats next week. And we've got the, today's parable in our mind what we will notice is that all of these parables are told in the context of the coming of the Son of Man and his judgment, and they contain the motif of action versus inaction. Five wise virgins taking extra oil and five not taking that action. Two servants taking the risky action of trading their master's money to make more money and one servant not taking any action with the money given to him. And finally, the sheep acting in a merciful and compassionate way to the least of Jesus' brothers, and the goats not acting in a merciful and compassionate way to the least of Jesus' brothers. And so this brings me to my first point. Action means acceptance into the kingdom of heaven, while inaction means rejection from the kingdom of heaven. To be sure, this makes us uncomfortable. But Jesus assures us It is only those who do the will of my father who is in heaven, who ultimately belong in his kingdom. I know we tend to emphasize that our faith and faith alone is what saves us or brings us into God's kingdom. But even James reminds us that a faith without works is not a saving faith, but rather a dead faith. In fact, James even uses the illustration of giving clothing and food to the needy as the working out of one's faith. More on that to come. But what we see is that those who will enter God's kingdom are those who are involved in the working out of God's kingdom. Scripture is clear that the work of the kingdom is always moving forward and it requires us to take a risk like the servants that traded their talents to earn more for their master in order to participate in that work. Personally, I know it's easy for me to identify with the servant who did nothing with that talent given him on the surface it actually seems like the right thing to do. Don't risk losing the money. Just hide it away so that nothing happens to it. Just play it safe and rest easy knowing nothing is lost if nothing is put out there to be lost. This makes sense to me. In fact, in my research, uh, scholarship even says that this unfaithful steward, this unfaithful servant, was actually showing his master to be wicked by doing the, the, by taking the inaction. So there's a logic to this. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. We must step out and act if we are to be service to our Lord. The Christian life is not one of passivity and simply waiting for God to wave a wand to work out his will in this world. We do not hold to fairy godmother theology. It's exactly the opposite of that. God's will God's kingdom comes through the actions of his followers acting as agents on his behalf. God has ordained it that we should partner with him in bringing his kingdom to bear in this world. And we get a sense of this in the very beginning of the Bible. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God's first command to Adam and Eve was an active command, not a passive command. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. He told them to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the creatures of the earth. Our God is an active God, and his kingdom is an active kingdom. Passivity is the antithesis of what it means to be part of his kingdom. My second point is that what counts for much and little in our economy is not the same for God and his economy. In the parable, the master gave his servants extremely large amounts of money, and later says to two of them that they have been faithful with little, so they will be overmuch. I think this should give us pause to consider what it means for us. I think it's worth considering that the talents referred to in this parable are not only the resources, skills, giftings, and abilities, but also the specific privileges and opportunities of the kingdom of heaven and the responsibilities that they entail. As New Testament scholar R.T. France says, The parable thus teaches that to be of service, I'm sorry, the parable thus teaches that each disciple has God-given gifts and opportunities to be of service to their Lord, and that these are not the same for everyone. God has given each of us gifting skills and abilities in various ways and to various degrees. The question for us is not so much, why didn't God give me what he gave this person or that person? The question or questions for us are, what has God given me? How does what he's given me fit in his kingdom? And how much am I willing to give back to him that which he has given to me? I think all too often we focus on the talents and skills that we do and don't have and perhaps waste, but we neglect to consider the opportunities given to us. This leads me to think that we need to ask ourselves if we truly believe what we pray. In our tradition, the prayer book answers a lot of questions about what we believe. There is a principle known as orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. In other words, what we pray expresses what we believe. In just a short time, After receiving Holy Eucharist, we will pray together and ask God to send us out to do the work He has given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. What we're praying for is exactly what this parable is saying God has given to us. But oftentimes, like the unfaithful servant, we fail to act. We're praying for God to give us opportunities. We're praying for God to bring people into our daily lives so that we might love them, so that we might serve them, so that we might be agents of God's healing and transforming power in their lives. But then we move on as though God has put nothing in our paths. Personally, I wonder of how much more value I could be to God if I were to recognize and take advantage of the opportunities given to me each day to serve him. As we take the time to see ourselves in these servants, the faithful and the unfaithful. Consider what it looks like for you to be faithful over to be faithful to God with a little so that he might put you over much. This brings me to my final point this morning. And that is that this parable can be seen working on a use it or lose it principle. The privileges, the opportunities, and the responsibilities that come with being in the kingdom can be lost if we choose not to act upon them. If I had a title for this sermon, and it is not my habit to title my sermons, but if I did, it just might be that use it or lose it. Use that which God has given you, or face losing what God has given you. Personally, I struggle with this at times. While I know that God is sovereign, and eventually He will have His way, He does not force, compel, or coerce His servants to act as his agents in this world. At times I wish he would, especially with me. But he doesn't work like that. Just as people are not forced into the kingdom of heaven, but loved into the kingdom of heaven, we, his servants, are not forced to work in his kingdom, but we do so out of our love for God and what he has done for us, in us, and what he can do through us. Perhaps our love and devotion to God is best expressed in our labor to God rather than the words that we offer to him. When I'm not sure what else to say in a sermon, I turn to the church fathers and to St. John Chrysostom in particular. The name Chrysostom or Chrysostom means golden mouth and it refers to his eloquence in preaching. In his sermon on this passage, he talks about the unfaithful servant losing what his master gave him, and he relates it to us losing, to losing what God has given us, both abilities and opportunities. He says, For as much then as this unfaithful servant did not this, take, saith the master, the talent from him, and give it to him that hath ten talents. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance." But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. What then is this? He that hath a a gift of word and teaching to profit thereby and useth it not will lose the gift also. But he that that giveth diligence will gain to himself the gift in more abundance, even as the other loseth what he had received. Let us then hearken to these words. As we have opportunity, let us help on our salvation. Let us get oil for our lamps. Let us add labor to our talent. For if we be backward and spend our time in sloth here, no one will pity us anymore hereafter, though we should wail 10,000 times. For the talents here are each person's ability, whether in the way of protection or in money or in teaching or in whatsoever of the kind. Loved ones, the choice is ours. We can use our talents and abilities, or we can lose them. May we choose wisely. So what is the point of all this? What does this have to do with us today in November of 2020, while we're just trying to survive a pandemic? A a contentious election cycle. New ways of doing life, from buying groceries to going to the doctor. New ways of working. New ways of going to school. What difference does this make? I think it raises many questions, more than I can ask and answer today. And I think it has great significance for us on our service to God as we are living through a pandemic and a season of social unrest and upheaval not seen in generations. And it is in these two areas that I want to situate our application today. I wonder what opportunities has God given the church? And how has the church been faithful? How has the church been unfaithful? I wonder, as individuals, what opportunities has God given to each of us? Where have we been faithful? Where have we been unfaithful? The crisis that we're living through, the two big crises that we're living through right now, have the potential to be the greatest opportunities that we have ever had to work for the advance of God's kingdom. I firmly believe this. This is my core conviction in 2020. This is our time to be the church. People are dying to be connected with one another. The loss of interpersonal relationships, it is draining people. Zoom is not cutting it. FaceTime is good, but it's not good enough. I've shared with my teens and youth in Bible study I drive through my neighborhood and I see a man. He doesn't look like me. His mother tongue is not the same as mine. And he walks. He walks up and down. And he has this pensive look on his face. Almost a troubled look. And I've sensed God nudging me towards him. And just a week or two ago, I drove by him and I looked at him. He looked at me. I waved. He waved back. And as I kept driving, I looked at my rearview mirror and he was still turned around waving at me. And it hit me, go after him, go after him. And so I'm getting that opportunity. I know God's going to give it to me and I'm going to walk up to him. I'm pretty good at it and just say, Hey, my name's Jed. Let me get to know you. I learned a lot in seminary. I had a great retired Bishop of South Carolina, Bishop Ed Salmon. He was not a scholar. He was not a brilliant man or a genius, in terms of intellect. But he was brilliant and he was a genius because he would tell us consistently in that wonderful southern draw that he developed from Natchez, Mississippi. It's all about relationship. Brothers and sisters, loved ones in Christ, take a look around you not just in this building in your community look at those who don't look like you find those that don't speak like you find those that don't vote like you find those that don't think like you and reach out to them and be Jesus to them it is all about that i think also for those that are going in need almost what i think it's tuesdays when i drive home from this church office And I see on Cardinal Drive, cars backed up trying to get into Neabsco Baptist Church to get boxes of food. And then I go back to James chapter two. What good is it if you have a faith and when you see someone without clothes and without food and you say, God bless you, be warm, be filled, go in peace. That's a a faith that saves? And we've got this food pantry Father Scott and the staff, we are looking at ways to expand this. And I think this is one of the best ways for us to be a presence in the community. We will put food on tables. And people will see the church as giving them spiritual nourishment as well as physical nourishment. This is our time. Jesus reminded his disciples when Peter spoke up and said that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, yeah, you're right, Peter. And on you, I'll build my church and the gates of death will not prevail against it. We are on offense. Gates are a defensive mechanism. This is our time to be on offense. This is our time to be Jesus to those in need of Jesus. So what am I asking you to do today? I'm asking you to take stock of what God has given you, both giftings and opportunities. Pray to discern them. Use available resources to discern them. Spiritual assessments, spiritual gifting assessments, things of that like. Listen to others that you consider to be godly and wise. Use them to help you discern your giftings and opportunities. Then consider how you can partner with All Saints Church here in this building and then in your community. Now I know who I'm speaking to as well. Since I've been here and I've been in the office on a regular basis, I see so many people coming in and I'm so thankful for those that are doing the work of the kingdom and that are serving. But I know that there are others for whatever reason that may not be joining in that work. And so I'm asking you, consider, consider. And then finally, take the risk of stepping out and it is a risk. It truly is a risk. But remember that God is with you. And when God is with you, failure is not an option. God does not fail. Remember the words of Isaiah, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God does not fail. But success in our eyes probably doesn't look like success in God's eyes. But God does not fail. May it be as we seek God's kingdom come and will be done on earth as in heaven. May it be as we seek to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Let us bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For we shall reap if we faint not. And as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the brethren. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.